I'm going to share with you guys a story that I told our Sunday school class this morning <laughs> before I get started. You know, I've been, I've been preaching you guys a lot lately on, on, on the Holy Spirit, and particularly uh, been preaching to you guys about prayer. More specifically, I've been preaching to you guys about communal prayer and the, and the importance of gathering together, praying together as a community, as a body, body of believers, and you know, I'm encouraging encouraging you guys. You know, come to the altar if you feel led, so led to do so, and uh, you know, just to really, really reach out and to pray for your brothers and your sisters. Uh, this past week, I went down to a conference on St. Simon's Island, and it was a conference full of full of pastors. Everybody there was, where it's either a pastor or a pastor's spouse. And uh, at one point during this conference, we did a we did a couple small group sessions, and these small groups were. I think there was probably about 15 of us there gathered around um, in a circle. And, and towards the end of this group, the, the guy that was leading it, uh, he asked for prayer requests, you know, wanted to know if there's anything that we could, you know, needed prayer for, and he, you know, made out his list, wrote everything down. <laughs> he said, okay, well, I'm going to start off, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and then when I get finished, if you guys want to join in, feel free to hop in there, and y'all go ahead and you say your prayer, and then when everybody's done, uh, I'll finish it up again, okay? So this guy started praying. Prayed for two or three minutes, stopped. Crickets. Not a single person, including myself, stepped up to pray. <laughs> and this is a group of 15 pastors, man. So I learned something that day. Number one, I'm going to stop being so hard on you guys. <laughs> Number two, I understand the intimidation now of, public, of praying in public, so... I just I thought, I thought that was pre, I thought that was pretty neat, pretty ironic. Anyway, I thought, thought y'all might appreciate that. Um, I don't know what led me to talk about the subject that I'm going to talk to you guys about today, other than other than God. It's not typically something that I touch on, but uh, I think it was a message that God just kind of dropped in my lap. Um, I want to talk to you guys about the idea of religious persecution, uh, pers religious persecution and, and hostility, and uh, you know how do we respond to to that hostility and that air, that error. Of persecution that's around us a lot of time, and I want to talk to you guys about the idea of suffering for the sake of the gospel. What does it mean to suffer for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus, and also really for the sake of other people? That may seem like kind of a strange combination of subjects. Maybe, maybe it doesn't, but I'm going to try my best anyway, if it does, to kind of tie them all together in a few mo in just a few minutes, hopefully. Uh, but I want to take a look first at a few verses from First Peter that speak directly to this subject. And it comes out of the first Peter chapter four, two, three verses, uh, verses 12 through 14. Peter writes these words, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That's the word of God for the people of God. Let me explain to you what's going on here in the book of First Peter because it's very, very important that we, that we grasp this and we grasp this well. Pretty much the entire book of First Peter is about facing opposition. It's all about living uh, in real persecution of Christians and of Christianity. We need to understand exactly who this church, who this letter was written to, for one thing, and, and 
also the cultural and the political context in which this letter was written at the time because it, it really drives home what Peter's getting at and, and the, uh, the, the, the extremity of what's going on here. When Peter wrote this letter, he was writing it to, to several different churches. He was, he was writing it to uh, a dispersed gatherings of churches in various territories. And all of them at the time were under Roman occupation, Roman rule. Not only that, when Peter wrote this letter, these churches were under occupation and they were under the rule of a guy by the name of Emperor Nero. Has anybody ever heard of Nero before? If you know anything about Nero, you know that he is probably most famous for the fact that he was extremely corrupt and he was extremely abusive. And he had a knack and a, and a special propensity to torture and to kill Christians. So these are the groups that Peter is writing to. These are the churches that Peter is writing to. These are the circumstances, the social, the political circumstances that they find themselves in. So when we say they were being persecuted, they were literally being killed. They were, be, they were, being, they were being tortured. They were being murdered for no other reason than the fact that they followed and professed Christ as Lord. That's pretty extreme, you know. Um, I know in the United States a lot of times, you know, we like to... We like to claim that we're persecuted in America, but you know, I don't. I don't remember any time in my life that, that I've ever, you know, been 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 uh, forced with uh, losing my freedom or my life, or that I was ever threatened with my faith because of my faith. I don't remember the last time any citizen or any government, you know, said they were going to kill me. <laughs> Because of the fact that I was coming to church on Sunday morning, you know, I'm not. I'm not going to deny it. I don't mean that. I don't mean to say that tongue in cheek necessarily. And I'm not going to deny that we that we that we experience hostility <coughs> in the United States. We do. We we experience hostility, but it's a far cry what we experience in 2022 in the United States. It's a far cry from the hostility we experience and the hostility that these churches were experiencing when at the time that Peter wrote this letter. It's also a far cry from the from the hostility and the true persecution that a lot of Christians and a lot of churches even now across the globe are still facing. Threat of arrest, threat of death, those types of things. Here's the thing. Despite all that stuff that was going on, despite the fact that this that Christianity was truly being persecuted, that people were being beheaded, uh, they were being beaten, all manners, all types of different uh, types of executions and torture. Peter writes these words. Rejoice. <laughs> Rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Rejoice at the idea that you are potentially going to die because of your faith in Christ. Not only rejoice, but hey, be overjoyed. Be abounding with joy. So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of the Christ, you are blessed. Three words stand out to me. Rejoice, be overjoyed, and, and you are blessed. I don't necessarily feel those things when I look at these scriptures. Or when I, or when I think of the idea of, of, of facing persecution or even, or even mild or moderate hostility. I don't know that I rejoice in those situations a lot of times. When's the last time you rejoiced in the face of hostility or rejection simply because of your faith? Or perhaps, or perhaps because we believe that some person or some group 
was working against us or working against the church or working against Christianity? What do you feel in your heart when you face these things? And all of us face it. All of, all of us experience some degree of hostility towards our faith one way or the other sometimes. What do you feel when this happens? Are you overjoyed? I'm going to guess probably not. Do you feel blessed, as Peter writes? Do you feel something else? Peter says that we can rejoice in suffering. We can rejoice in the face of hostility because our hope is not here. He lays it out for us right there in, the, in, the, in, the, in these verses. Our hope is not in worldly systems. Our hope is not in earthly governments. Our hope is not even in human progress. Any temporary hostility that we endure because of our faith during our short time on earth is just that. It's temporary. We know how this story ends. We know that all of this mess that we have created, all this mess that humans have created, is going to be redeemed one day. We know that God's perfect kingdom on earth is coming. Not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. That's why he writes these words. Rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Why? So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. That's where our hope comes from. It doesn't matter how much how much suffering we have that's inflicted upon us. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, we know the end of the story, and we know the hope that we have in Christ. All of this stuff is going to be redeemed, and all of this stuff is going to be made perfect. That should be our foundation, our ground for understanding why. Why we can rejoice. Why we can be happy. Why we can feel blessed, even in the face of hostility. Even in the face of horrible persecution. Horrible persecution. I want to read to you something out of the book of Revelation. Oh, no, the pastor is going to Revelation. But Revelation tells us the story, y'all. It tells us why we can rejoice. It tells us the source of why we can endure the things that we endure here on earth simply because of our faith. It gives us what we can look forward to. Revelation chapter 21 starts in verse, starting in verse, verse 1. John writes this. This is so beautiful. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and I saw a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy sea, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from a throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Why can we have joy in the face of suffering here on earth? Because it's only temporary, and we know the end of the story. We know the day comes when there are no more tears. There is no more pain. There is no more suffering. We can endure what we have to. Look at these guys. Look at what they endured. What we're enduring right now is minimal. Just a little bit of hostility for the most part is all I've ever had to endure. This is what Peter was referring to, again, when he, in our scripture today. The coming of God's kingdom on earth. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed. Overjoyed when his glory is revealed. It's not a matter of 
if this is going to happen, folks. It's a matter of when. That's why we can be at peace. We can be at peace in the face of hostility. We can be at peace in the face of, of Christian persecution. It's the reason why so many of these early Christians were so bold in their faith. It's why they were so willing to die for it, as many did and as many have in the past. It's why a guy named Stephen in the book of, the, in the book of Acts, while he was literally being stoned to death, could look up to God and say, Forgive them, God, for they don't know what they're doing. Stephen knew what was coming to him. He knew what was next. He could endure the death of stoning and in the face of that say, Forgive them, God. Somebody else did that one time, too, in the Bible. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Y'all know what happened to the original 12 disciples? Where's that go? Yeah, with the exception, with the exception of John and Judas, we know what happened to all of them. Traditionally, let me tell you what happened to the original disciples. Peter and Paul were both martyred, most, uh, general, probably around the same time. Some people think that they were martyred during the time of our, our friend Nero here. Regardless, Paul was beheaded, and as we know, a lot of us know, Peter was crucified. Andrew was crucified. Thomas was killed by soldiers with spears. Philip was arrested and killed by Roman authorities. Matthew was stabbed to death. Bartholomew, accounts buried between crucifixion and beheading. We're not exactly sure which, which end he met. James was stoned and clubbed to death. Simon was killed after refusing to offer sacrifices to a false god. Matthias, there's a name you probably don't know, but he's the one that replaced Judas. He was burned alive. And again, of course, we know what happened to Judas. All of these people, all of these people martyred for no other reason than their faith in Jesus Christ. Yet they did it. They knew what they were facing. They knew what they were facing. And they still did it. How amazing is that? Think about some people in our lifetime. First person that comes to my mind when it, when it, comes, to being, when it comes to being persecuted and being martyred for your faith was a guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Y'all ever heard of him? Bonhoeffer was a pastor and he was a theologian in Germany during the reign of Hitler. He was adamantly opposed to Hitler and that government and he spoke out against it very, very, very much. He was eventually hung by the Nazis for his beliefs. He was a martyr. People very much admire him today. I would argue MLK stands in that category. A lot of us forget the fact that MLK was a Baptist minister. It was his belief in Jesus. It was his belief in the idea of nonviolent resistance. It was his belief in the idea of everybody being created in the image of God that led him to do the things that he did, that led him to be big to promote. It was a Christian basis. It was grounded in Scripture. It led him to one of the biggest social movements the United States has ever seen and one of the biggest transformations the United States has ever seen. Our own John Wesley was greatly, greatly persecuted. Here's something you're not going to hear about in Sunday school. But Wesley often faced violent opposition very, very frequently. He would be thrown out of town. He would be attacked and chased by mobs everywhere. They would, they, would, they would pelt him with stones. They'd smear him with dirt. They would drag him through the streets, literally by the hair. That's the Wesley you don't hear about very often, but that's just the fact. He was ostracized by his own church in England because he dared to be too zealous 
about his faith. Now, Wesley wasn't martyred. Wesley died an old man, but he faced a lot of persecution because of it. These are the heroes of the faith. These are the people that stand that stood strong through thick and thin. You see, Wesley, the apostles, the early church, Peter, all these guys, they believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they believed the promise of what was to come was all worth it. They believed that it was worth enduring whatever amount of suffering they had to. They loved Jesus, and they loved people just that much. They knew that they were not part of some stale and impotent religion, that they were part of a true movement of the Holy Spirit, a movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a movement of the kingdom of God on earth like we talk about so much here. That's what love looks like, church. When we talk about love in the church, that Greek word that we always, that we always hear all, all, the, all the fancy and smart preachers say, agape, that's the kind of love they're talking about. The kind of love that's willing to suffer for the other person no matter the cost. It's not mushy sentimentality like we like to think of when we think of love a lot of times. It is love in its most purest and its most holy form, the form that willingly gives itself, the form that willingly gives of, its, gives of itself no matter what, no matter what's thrown at it. It's the kind of love that compelled Peter. It's the kind of love that compelled these early Christians that we've talked about to suffer for the gospel. And it's the kind of love that propelled Christ, Kevin, to the cross. Holy love, pure love, holy love and pure love for God and neighbor is going to bring suffering. Okay? These happy-go-lucky lifestyles that you see a lot of these preachers preaching on television, that ain't why Christ came. Suffering is going to be a part of your Christian walk. Some form of persecution facing some form of hostility is going to be a part of your Christian walk. There is no avoiding it. There is no getting around it. It is a guarantee. It is what guarantee that Christ himself gives us. Gives us. It is a guarantee that the early writers of the New Testament give us over and over and over and over again. It is absolutely unavoidable here's what Jesus said about it told his disciples in John 15 19 and 20 he said if you belong to the world it would love you as its own as it is you do not belong to the world because I have chosen you out of the world and that is why the world hates you remember what I told you Christ said a servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me they will persecute you also. It is a guarantee, folks. It's, it's not an option. It's going to happen for us. Hostility and persecution from the world because of our faith and because of our allegiance to Christ, Scripture tells us, is absolutely unavoidable. Here's the thing, though, as Christians. We don't face this thing like the world faces persecution and faces hostility. Instead, we welcome it. We welcome it, gladfully, joyfully, willingly, unconditionally. You know, we've been going over the Sermon on the Mount on our Wednesday night studies. And in Matthew chapter 5, at the end of the Beatitudes, here's what Christ says. 
again, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you, and when they falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Folks, we don't model the ways of the world when it comes to facing hostility or when it comes to facing persecution because of our faith in Christ. Again, in comparison to these early Christians, in comparison to a lot of stuff that goes on around our world today, we've got it really pretty easy in the U.S. But nonetheless, nonetheless, we still have this weird habit. We've got this weird habit when we face these situations of wanting to respond to these conflicts with our sinful and fallen nature. We want the revenge. We want the retaliation. And we want to push back. We want to push back against that hostility. We want to show them. We want to get that retaliation. That is from our sinful, fallen nature. Christ just told us that. This isn't the way of the cross, church. When we do that, that doesn't model Jesus. That's not the way of the cross. It's not the way that Peter writes about here. It's not the way that was modeled by the early church. Love your enemies, Jesus says. How many times have we gone over and over and over and over that? And yet we still don't seem to grasp it when we're faced in rough, difficult situations like this. When we feel that someone is being someone or some group is being hostile towards us simply because of our faith. Love your enemies, Jesus. That doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who what? Miss Jean, you got it right. Pray for those who persecute you. A lot of us look at those verses that I just mentioned, you know, from particularly from the Sermon on the Mount, and we talked about this one Wednesday night. I remember that too. Well, this, you know, does this mean that we have to be a bunch of pushovers? Absolutely not. Those verses, those instructions of Jesus are not about being pushovers. It's about us having the strength. It is about us having the strength and about us having that agape, that non-mushy love that we talked about a minute ago and that we talked about and that we talk about so much in the church that we refuse to act like the world. We refuse to respond with hostility. We refuse to respond to hostility with more hostility. In the words of Paul in Romans 12, which we have gone over before, we do not fight evil with more evil, but we overcome evil with what? Come on. Doing good. Don't fight evil with evil, but overcome evil by doing good. We refuse, folks. We refuse. To, facing opposition, facing persecution, here's the meat of my message. It's inevitable. People are going to persecute us. Groups are going to persecute us. People and groups are going to be hostile towards us to, from one degree to the other, whether it's in their words or whether it's through actually, actually torturing and killing us. It's going to happen. How we respond is what matters the most. How we respond is what matters, and this is modeled over and over again. Uh, Jesus on the cross, it's modeled by the words of Peter, it's modeled by the words of Paul. Because that's what the world sees when they see Christians. We refuse to be overcome by the evil of this world. We overcome that evil with the goodness and the love of Christ that's residing in each and every one of us.